You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, I'm Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. Welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for October 2018. This is a monthly wrap-up of some of the most interesting stories we covered on TCTMD.com. I sum them up, then give you a chance to listen to a few snippets of audio from the interviews our reporters did to write those stories. October was a month of catch-up for me and my team. We all got to stay put after a busy stretch of meetings in late August through September. That gave us time to catch up on coverage from the TCT meeting, as well as cover a few topics off the beaten path. I myself actually found the time to lose myself in a feature story on industry-funded clinical trials. I'll come back to that in a moment. Hopefully you had a chance to check out all of our TCT coverage. It kept us busy well into the first week of October. Yael came home from TCT with plans to circle back to a letter to the editor in Jack Cardiovascular Imaging, which came out just as we were heading into that meeting. The letter was penned by a group led by D.D. Wang of Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit and was titled, Navigating a Career in Structural Heart Disease Interventional Imaging. As Wang and other imaging experts explained when they met up with Yael at TCT, this is an exploding field. The range and complexity of structural heart interventions has increased exponentially in recent years and, with it, a greater dependency on imaging, not just during the procedures themselves but in the planning stages too. Not only is training non-standardized and unstructured for this essential role, but reimbursement is lagging behind. I'm going to play you part of Yael's conversation with Wang. You'll have to excuse the ambient noise. That's the sound of the TCT 2018 conference literally being dismantled in the background. Talk to me about what you're excited about right now. I think that with COAP being positive, this has brought transcatheter therapies into a new light mm-hmm. and is providing a culture shift where people actually believe in transcatheter therapies again, more than TAVR ever brought to the stadium. And there's so many more patients that we can help that for like 20, 30 years we've been told by surgeons that we're not going to actually get better. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other limelight that comes to this is that these mitral procedures and all these mitral procedures are not possible without imaging guidance. They're 100% TEE, interprocedural imaging guided. Um, but it shines a light to the fact that the person doing the imaging um, is actually needs, needs protection not only from radiation safety standpoint, but time to actually do these procedures. And right now, the manuscript that we published um, is saying that a lot of us who are passionate doing interventional imaging in this field, we do it at a cost because there is no productivity metric for the line of work that we do because of all the new clinical trials and devices. All the um, metrics of productivity is being assigned to a device physical implant, but not the imaging to make that device happen. A range of TCT stories made it into our top 10 this month, including my TCT Takeaways blog, which took a detailed look at the COAPT trial results and why they differed so markedly from the other Mitra Clip trial du jour, Mitra FR. That blog, which I hope you'll check out in the editor's corner on TCTMD, also pointed me towards a feature story looking at industry-funded clinical trials. COAPT was industry-funded, MITRA FR was not. While I was still polishing up that blog post, a study came out in the BMJ that dovetailed nicely with the kind of questions I was asking. 
It looked at 200 Phase 3 and 4 drug, device, and vaccine trials that were fully sponsored by the manufacturers across all areas of medicine and what involvement the sponsor had in the design, conduct, and reporting of those studies. I started reaching out for reactions to the BMJ paper, and a feature story was born. I interviewed two of the BMJ study authors, Christine Rasmussen of the Nordic Cochrane Centre in Copenhagen and Rita Redberg of UCSF. I also managed to speak with half a dozen of the biggest names in cardiology clinical trials, including former FDA Commissioner Robert Califf. He spoke in depth about the need for transparency, different skill sets, and the considerable role played by the FDA in overseeing trial conduct and results. As he put it, nefariousness can indeed creep into clinical research, but it can come from all sides. I hope you'll check out my feature story on TCTMD. You'll find it on our homepage with the title, The Price of Knowledge, Industry-Sponsored Studies in the Era of Evidence-Based Medicine. For now, here's part of my conversation with Caliph. I've stitched two parts of his response together for this clip. This is at the outset of the interview. I've just asked Caliph whether he thought the public should be concerned about the role of industry funding in clinical trials. Boy, that's a complicated question. I think everybody should be concerned about clinical trials. and should be concerned about how they get done and how they get disseminated and all of that. But... Um, I don't really see it as an academic versus non-academic issue. It's really a clinical practice issue. I don't think the system that we have is balanced the way it should be, but it's been that way forever. Lots of other stories made waves on TCTMD this month, of course. The two most clicked stories happened to be covered by TCTMD's Todd Neal, and both were breaking news stories on rivaroxaban. One was the announcement that the Galileo trial testing rivaroxaban after TAVR had been halted after seeing a higher number of deaths, thromboembolic events, and bleeding in patients taking the drug. The trial was actually stopped back in August, but we didn't hear about it until the Dear Doctor letters went out October 3rd. Roughly a week later, there was rosier news for this agent. On October 12th, the FDA announced that it had approved an expanded indication for rivaroxaban based on the COMPASS trial results. The drug can now be used in patients with stable coronary or peripheral artery disease, making it the first direct oral anticoagulant cleared for this use. In other clinical news, we saw two new studies this month, both of them once again supporting a role for same-day discharge after elective PCI. In one study, the cost savings were predicted to exceed $5,000 per case, while the second found that earlier discharge did not lead to more readmissions. Laura McEwen covered these two papers in a single story for TCTMD. They were published in JAMA Cardiology and the American Journal of Cardiology, respectively. Experts interviewed by Laura stressed that the cost savings, coupled with the lack of adverse events, should really speak for themselves in terms of persuading hospitals to adopt policies focused on earlier discharge. What's needed in some cases is a cultural shift, they said, adding that data like this will hopefully help pave the way for change. Here's part of Laura's conversation with Ian Gilchrist of Hershey Medical Center in Pennsylvania, a co-author on one of the papers. There's such a great savings by sending the patients home the same day that I can't imagine that any healthcare facility would not want to take advantage of that. And then from the physician end, it's awfully nice not to get calls all night from patients that are in overnight and you know, need a sleeping pill or need this. And our patients, our catchment crew here has been going home the same day, you know, for uh, 
since the late 90s now, and patients just love it. They don't. They come in saying they're planning to go home today. It's an expectation, and it's not a concern. So you basically have administrators happy, doctors happy, and the patients are happy. I, I don't understand why anyone would not want to do it. Just who should be taking a statin and when they should start is a perennial topic of interest. This month, TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon covered a modeling study that looked at whether a long-term benefit-based approach might be better than the guideline-recommended risk stratification tools now in use. For the study, George Thanasoulis of McGill University in Montreal, Canada, focused on patients expected to receive a 15% or greater absolute reduction in CV events over a 30-year period. Current guidelines, by contrast, use a risk tool based on an individual's 10-year risk. You'll have to seek out Mike's story to get the details from this study and find out why one expert is cautioning against the, quote, mass statinization of the general public. For a teaser, here's Thanasoulis explaining why he thinks this benefit-based approach might be a better way to identify the patients who will benefit from this therapy long-term. So, I mean, one of the major issues, of course, is with any risk-based approach, risk is almost uh, entirely uh, linked to age So, and all the other risk factors that we tend to um, consider in those models sort of get swapped out by the effect of age. When you use a risk model, you're, you're in, in a sense, um, going to be treating older patients for, for you know, um, the use of statins, and you're going to be missing a lot of young patients. Um, and when we actually look at how you know, heart attacks break down, we realize that, you know, almost 30% of heart attacks seem to happen in younger patients. And these are patients who would normally not be uh, prescribed statins based on uh, risk-based approaches. Uh, and this is despite the fact that often these individuals will have high LDL cholesterol or, or other risk factors. Not every story we wrote this month was specifically related to the use of drugs and procedures. Caitlin Cox reported on a study out of Sweden where one hospital has launched a program to address sexual harassment of physicians and staff. Part of the initiative involved a survey which found that both female and male doctors experienced some form of harassment. Though patterns and perpetrators varied by sex, both men and women seemed to be most vulnerable when they worked in an environment that the authors characterize as having a strong hierarchy. Pamela Douglas of Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, commented on the survey results for Caitlin. She highlighted the fact that while institutional hierarchies play a powerful role, in this survey, roughly 30% of respondents listed patients as their harassers. In some cases, this took the form of patients and families demanding a doctor of a different race. Other times, they don't want a female doctor to provide their care, though happily, according to Douglas, that sentiment seems to be easing. A new wrinkle that has emerged, however, has come while trying to find a balance between cultural sensitivity and gender equality. Here's part of Caitlin's conversation with Douglas. We're very focused on patients being customers and satisfying patient needs and culturally competent care. And, you know, what point does culturally competent care when the culture is that women are in the kitchen and not on the wards? Does that become degrading to female physicians? And how do you balance out the value of culturally competent care, which is a strong and and important one with the value of not discriminating amongst our professional staff. So that's a big conundrum that we uh, are just beginning to start recognizing and addressing. 
That's it for the October edition of Heart Sounds. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we did not, alas, come home with a win from the People's Choice Podcast Awards last month. That honor in the science and medicine category went to Curiosity Daily, so congrats to the folks at curiosity.com. What we did come away with, however, is a lot of love from folks like you who took the time to nominate us, and for that I'm truly grateful. I hope you keep listening and that you won't be shy about giving us feedback on this program. Participating in the awards gave me a few new ideas for things I might want to try on the show and also introduced me to a whole bunch of new podcasts. I might tune into some of those when I ship out to the American Heart Association scientific sessions in a few weeks' time. TCTMD's Yael Maxwell, Todd Neal, and Micah Reardon will be joining me in Chicago. We absolutely hope to run into some of you there, and if you have tips for news you think we should know about going into the meeting, please drop me a line. You can find my coordinates via my bio on tctmd.com or on Twitter. I'm Shelley Wood, too. Thanks for listening. Meet you back here at the end of November. <laughs>